Well, good evening, everybody. I'm glad to be together with you this evening. All right. Uh, to kick off our talk tonight, I'd love for everybody to get your phone out. I know you all have your phone, so it's all right if you got your phone. Get your phone out. I'm going to ask you to send a text message in just a minute. Uh, so get your phone out. Uh, I'm going to ask you to send a text message to 725. Got to put in the number. 725 2 Open up that messaging app. Put it in. 725. All right. Now, I want you to consider this. This is a, a moral thought problem that was first introduced by Philippa Foote, uh, an English um, ethicist and philosopher. It's called the trolley problem. Uh, so you can Google it later. Uh, do, do, use the Googler and, and get that done. You can see its history, its development as it's gone on. But for our discussion this evening, I just want to stick to the original situation. So uh, if you imagine that you are the driver of a runaway trolley, you can only steer from one track to one other track. Now, on the track that your trolley is on, the main track, there are five men working who cannot get out of the way. On the other track that you could switch to, there is one man working who also could not get out of the way. Anyone on either track will be killed. What should you do? Should you continue forward or should you switch tracks? Okay, this is the trolley problem. You're going down. Your trolley has lost all control. On one track, there are five workers. They are there. They can't get out of the way. If you go down that track, you will kill them all. If you go down the other track, there is also another worker who can't get out of the way, and you will kill him. What do you do? Do you continue or you switch. This is our moral thought problem. 725. All you have to do is text in continue or switch. That's it. Do you continue on the track or do you switch? I can, the texts are coming in. The texts are coming in. I love this. Okay. This is also a good time to remind you that throughout our discussion tonight, because of the topic, uh, we're going to have uh, comments and, and questions, Q&A at the end, so I encourage you, uh, keep your phone out, text in comments or questions as we go through our evening together. We're all on this journey where we are seeking God together, uh, we're seeking something together, and so your perspective is valuable to my journey, and so using the text option is one way, just like the, con the, the connection card is another way that we keep this conversation going together. We started a series called Purple Church, and we're exploring what it means to be faithful and civically engaged. And so we've got some ground rules to help us navigate uh, these emotional and complex issues. Let me give them to you. Number one, I don't have all of the answers. And you don't either. I think that's an important part for us to recognize. Second is I'm probably going to say something wrong or offend you. 
That's probably going to happen tonight. That's probably going to happen in this series. Uh, I'm going to do my best to make sure that, that it's Jesus that offends you and not me, but I'll probably get that wrong. So just, just know that's going to happen. Let's do our best to stay connected to each other. Third, uh, we want to continue to be engaged here and think uh, and engage faithfully beyond this series, beyond tonight, beyond this month, beyond this election cycle. So this is an ongoing thing. Fourth, we're very, trying very hard to be practical, theological, and faithful. And so try and join us for all of it. And then fifth, like I already said, we have the phone number uh, where we want you to go ahead and text in your questions or comments. So why a purple church? What is a purple church? Now you can catch this whole talk over on our YouTube channel. And, uh, uh, and by the way, I'm looking for a team member that will help us uh, finish up getting our podcast up and running if that's the way that you prefer to consume your content. But to summarize really quickly, a purple church is one who recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and that our allegiance is to Him and His kingdom. A purple church recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and our allegiance is to Him and His kingdom. And a purple church understands and embraces the fact that there is no red church, there is no blue church, there is only in Christ. And as we all know from kindergarten, when red and blue come together, we get purple. And so I tried to lay out all those thoughts a little more completely last week, which is why I'd encourage you to go to YouTube, uh, search for Sot Church, and then I would really love for you to message me uh, your thoughts on that talk. Tonight, I want to move from broad purple church to our subtitle of this series. How can we be faithfully and civically engaged? Now, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. Um, I'm asking questions about how we can be civically engaged, not necessarily politically engaged. And uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about that at the end. Civics has to do with the rights and duties of citizenship. Now, you might take a civics class in high school or in college, but then that term kind of drops out of our collective vocabulary, you know? It only really comes back when we're talking about fulfilling our civic duty, which is either jury duty or voting. <laughs> and that's about the only time that you, like, get back to that word in any kind of normal conversations. Civics is not just about government. Yes, civics relate, uh, refers to the relationship between myself and and the government, but it also refers to my relationship between myself and my fellow citizens. And so we're talking about civics and being faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to the Messiah, Jesus, and the kingdom of God. Remember, a purple church is one that recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and that our allegiance is to Him and to His kingdom. And so what should be our guide? What is our measuring stick? What is our map? What is our guardrails on the roads of civics and faithfulness? And for that, I want to look at the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10 tonight. If you don't have a Bible, but you would like a Bible, there's one out of the cart in the hallway. 
Uh, you might ask yourself, like, why would you spend time reading and trying to understand an ancient religious text? I'd give you two very broad reasons just for everybody in general, whether you're Christian or not. First, Christians believe that uh, the Bible is the primary way that God, or a primary way that God reveals himself to humanity. And so if you're wondering about God, Jesus, or Christianity, then the Bible is the place to start. Second, even if you don't believe in God, the Bible has shaped the culture that we live in in profound ways. And so if you want to more closely understand your world, reading the Bible is important. And so we've got a Bible for you. Out of the cart, you can also go to Bible.com slash app to download one, and we're going to have the scriptures on the screen. Now, Luke wrote one of four Gospels about Jesus' life on earth. And he did this by extensively researching, investigating, and interviewing eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. And then he wrote it down so that someone could have a trustworthy account about Jesus. And Luke's gospel especially reveals the impact and meaning of Jesus the Messiah and the kingdom of God for people who were on the margins of society. And so if you read Luke's Gospel, you'll see an emphasis in that area. Tonight we're going to look at a parable that Jesus tells that has become an idiom of our English language. The Good Samaritan. In lots of ways, the parable of the Good Samaritan has lost its original kind of original punch because of the ubiquity of the phrase Good Samaritan. So now you hear about a good Samaritan, and it's basically just anybody who stops and helps becomes a good Samaritan. But that's not the point of the story as Jesus tells it. And so I want us to see this together and hopefully uh, let the impact of it hit us again tonight. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor. Now, the conversation with Jesus starts with a question about how a person should live. What framework, what guide, what measurement, what ethic should be used in determining how a person should live? The religious lawyer is asking, how should I live now so that I can keep on living? And Jesus, in typical rabbi fashion, turns the question around and he says, you tell me. And here's where we get what's often known as the great commandment, uh, what gets kind of poorly boiled down to the golden rule. Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Now the conversation could have ended there because Jesus affirms the man's response. He, he, He doesn't add anything to it. He just says, Yeah, that's it. Do it. Go ahead. Off you go. But the religious lawyer, because he's a religious lawyer, understands what that means. And he would like to see 
if there is a loophole. It's like, you all understand this moment. When you get to the end of your 1040 form that you turn into the IRS and it says that you owe money and you go, I wonder if I could find a loophole. <laughs> there must have been something I missed back there. You, you, so the, the man hears the answer and he thinks, I, I wonder if there's a loophole. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, that's great. I'll, I'm glad that I'm right, but I want you to know that, that that's really wide. In fact, that's really kind of all-encompassing. I can't think of any action or any person that falls outside of those commandments. So, so can we limit the scope of this just a little bit? Love my neighbor as myself. Hmm. Well, Jesus, are you aware that my neighbor is a registered Republican? In fact, they even put lawn signs out in their yard about Republican candidates in the front yard where everyone can see. Yeah, he may live next to me, but we are worlds apart. Is he really my neighbor? Jesus, is it only property owners that are my neighbors? Do renters count? Or absentee landlords? Yeah, there are homeless people in my neighborhood often. But they don't really have any stake in this neighborhood. Do they count as a neighbor? Jesus, I'm not sure if you're aware. But my neighbor is an immigrant. Do they count? Jesus, my neighbor's Muslim. Do, do they count? Jesus, my neighbor's gay. Do they count? The question the religious lawyer is focused on is often the same question that we're focused on. Who? Who out there do I have to love? What standard do I get to use to, to judge others and their neighborworthiness? And so Jesus tells a story. Continuing on in Luke chapter 10, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Well, yeah, Jesus, of course they did that. Everybody knows the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is pretty dangerous. What idiot went down the road by himself? Why didn't he make a different choice? By chance, a priest came along. Really, that, that would be more, more like, luckily, luckily the priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. Luckily, 
a temple assistant, walked over. And he looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Then, and here's where the story twists and turns. Because everybody that's listening to Jesus' story for the first time goes, oh, the priest didn't do it. Oh, the the temple assistant, the Levite, didn't do it. It's just going to be the regular old Joe Israelite. He's going to come along and he's going to be the hero. Then, a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Because we have the the phrase, Good Samaritan, we're expecting a Good Samaritan. Nobody was expecting a Good Samaritan. Nobody was expecting a Samaritan at all. Samaritan, there was no good Samaritan. If they're a Samaritan, they're a bad Samaritan. Because all Samaritans are bad Samaritans. So they have no possibility of, of this person from this ethnicity, from this religious group. There is no way that this person could be the hero of the story. Jesus finishes up the story and then he says in verse 36, Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied. Now I want you to notice, Jesus has said Samaritan, right? The man can't even put the word Samaritan on his lips. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yeah, go and do the same. It's the same, it's the same response as before. Yeah, just do that. <laughs> now, I want to point out a couple of things from this story. The priest comes along, sees, walks to the other side of the road walks by. The temple assistant, the Levite, comes along, actually comes over to the man, sees, and walks by. The Samaritan comes along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. If we're going to be civically and faithfully engaged, we have to find compassion. We have to find the ability to feel with To have compassion stir up in us. Even for someone or something that that has nothing to do with us. That is beyond the realm of our known experience. 
I think we have to recognize once again that you and I don't have all of the answers and that there are things that exist in this world, that exist in this country, that exist in this city and exist in this neighborhood that are beyond our known experience. And so because of that, when we are dealing with each other and we are considering our own civic engagement, we must find compassion, the ability to feel with someone. Because it's the compassion that stirs up in the Samaritan that then moves him into action. The compassion is missing from the priest and the Levite, but something rises up. And that's the danger of compassion. It's so, it's so often I think we, we resist the urge to feel with, is because if we feel with, then we can no longer not do something. After the events of 1 October, a couple of weeks later, Janelle and I had lunch with a pastor mentor of ours. He came into town. He's from uh, across the country. Came into town and took us to lunch. And it was right after, so we were discussing uh, all the events. We were At that moment, we were discussing, like, what do you think? Like, what, what action should we take as a nation? What action would we like our legislatures to take? And uh, we were talking about guns and, and gun control, and, and, I mean, we were talking about all of that. During the course of the conversation, I, I happened to say to them, you know, since moving to Las Vegas, I have become more engaged I think I used the word politically. I've become more politically engaged than at any other point in my life. And it's true. Since moving to Las Vegas, I have called more senators and representatives and emailed uh, city council members and connected with state and uh, state senate and, and the state uh, representative. I mean, I've, I've emailed school board members. I, I have become more... I watch... I look at the agenda of city council and planning commission meetings. I do all, I'm, I am more engaged than I ever have been in my entire life. And my mentor looked at me and he said, why is that? And the only response that I could come up with, because it's so, like, this is not me. I never did this at any other point. The only reason is because I care more. I moved to Las Vegas so that we could start a church and love a city and show a city that Jesus loves them. And so because I care more, I call more. I've wanted to feel that compassion rise up in me for issues and places, and people that I may just have walked by before. And so if we're going to be faithfully and civically engaged, please, please do it out of compassion. The second thing that I, I want to point out is that Jesus flips this question at the end. 
The man's question is, who is my neighbor? Who are they? At the end, Jesus flips it on him, and he does it so sneakily. That darn Jesus. He flips it around, and basically, if you were to boil down Jesus' response, which is, now, out of all of these three, who would you say is the neighbor? And, and the man is forced to respond, the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And he says, now and go do the same. And so what he's saying is, hey, instead of asking who they are, let's ask this question, who are you? See, he doesn't, give, he doesn't tell the man, oh, see, Samaritans are supposed to be your neighbors. He says, which one do you want to be? Who are you? Instead of constantly asking, who are they? Who do I have to love? How far does that extend for me? You have to ask yourself the question, who am I? Who do I want to be? Are you a neighbor? This is the great commandment. And I think sometimes we get so used to this that we, that we let it lose its impact, its, its, its challenge. I mean, it feels good to say, oh man, everybody would just love your neighbor as yourself until you think about what it means, which means you have to love your neighbor as yourself. You have to be a neighbor. Oh. Now, if we stopped there, that would be fantastic. I think that our whole uh, current society and engagement and discussions around civic issues would be wholly different if we could take Jesus seriously and say, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, knowing full well what that means. I think that's a great place to start. I think everybody could start there. Now, for Christians, it goes further. That darn Jesus. Because Jesus takes the great commandment, and he moves from great commandment to new commandment. He says, yeah, that's right. If you were to sum up all of the law and all of the prophets, if you were to take the entire Old Testament, all of the Jewish Scripture and sum it up, it could be summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right. But in this kingdom, where I'm the Messiah, and everybody that's a part of this kingdom has their allegiance to my rule and reign, I'm giving a new commandment. And this is Jesus' new commandment in the Gospel of John. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is about to make his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and he will willingly lay down his life on the behalf of people who have nothing to offer Him, 
who've done nothing for him. He's just doing it so that he can fix our sin problem and connect us back to God and each other. And the solution is through Jesus' own death and crucifixion. How much would... Jesus at another point says, it's normal for somebody to do something kind for a good person. How many people would do something for a bad person? How, it's great to lay down your life for a friend. And so Jesus says, in this new kingdom where I'm the Messiah, in this purple church where I'm the Messiah, and we are all uh, submitting to His rule and reign, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other like I loved you. You've got to move from great commandment to new commandment. That's why I've chosen the word civics. How do we remain civically engaged rather than how do we remain politically engaged? Because here's the definition of politics. The activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties, having or hoping to achieve power. The definition of politics is to grab for power. And in Jesus' kingdom, that's not the way we do it. We lay down our life for each other. We love each other like Jesus loved each other. We don't just love each other in this room like Jesus loved each other. We love our neighbors like Jesus loved each other. And we ask ourselves, what does it mean for me to be a neighbor? What does it mean for me to be a part of a purple church where the Messiah gets to rule and reign? It means that I lay down my life even For somebody that I don't agree with, it means that I take on the burden myself like Jesus took on the burden for me in order to love someone else. It means that instead of trying to be politically engaged, we can be civically engaged because civics has more to do than grabbing with power. It's about how do I rightly as a citizen engage with, polit- with, with government and with, with my fellow uh, people who are residing and living among me, my fellow citizens. At the beginning, I presented to you the moral thought problem, the trolley problem. Do you continue down the track knowing that five people would die or do you switch knowing that one person would die? There's lots of variations to the problem. Here's the problem with the problem. It presents to you two options as if there are no other options. Jesus' answer to the trolley problem would be, how do I get in front of the trolley myself? Too often what happens when we start to be civically or politically engaged is that you are presented with two options as if they are the only options. As if there's not a third way. When Jesus is 
being interrogated by Pilate, who would go on to order his own crucifixion. Pilate just comes straight out and asks him, are you a king? And Jesus' answer is, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, you've got the, the kind of the Jewish religious leaders, you've got the Roman government and all of its leaders, and they're, they're all pulling at Jesus. It's a very politically heated situation. The reason Jesus is crucified by those two entities is because he's causing a political problem. It, it's a problem for them. And Jesus says there's a third way. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not still civically engaged or that he doesn't have something to say to our own interactions with each other and how a government uh, should uh, operate. I, I don't believe that that part is true. I would rather say Jesus is saying there's a third way. My kingdom goes a different way. And the people who are a part of my kingdom follow it differently. Jesus is the Messiah. And a purple church follows his reign in every area of life. A purple church goes from great commandment to new commandment. And so while there are issues coming up in just a few weeks that we will be asked to cast a vote upon, a purple church would ask, what should I mark that helps me love my neighbor like Jesus loved me. It might cost me something. It might not feel good, but I'm willing to vote for the thing that helps me love my neighbor as Jesus loved me in spite of that. As you consider candidates to vote for various public offices, the question you should ask is, does that person have the character and the, the quality and the agenda that is going to help love my neighbor like Jesus loved me? As you consider the tone of the conversation and your own conversation. You have to ask yourself, am I doing this? And am I talking about this? And am I engaged in, in this in a way that helps me love my neighbor like Jesus loved me? As you try to strike up conversations that will build up compassion, the ability to feel with someone or something that is outside your experience, you have to ask yourself, am I doing this in a way that helps me love my neighbor like Jesus loved me? Who do I want to be? This might be the most, I don't, I don't know, because we still got two more weeks to go, so it could get worse from here. But this might be the most challenging thought that I've had while trying to wrestle with the issue. How do I be civically and faithfully engaged? Love your neighbor as yourself is a great place to start.
Start there. If you follow Jesus, love your neighbor like Jesus loved you.